This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. The Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore. Because life's just better with a book. Welcome to the Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore from the Centre for Public Christianity. In episode 24, we are reviewing books about books in one way or another. Natasha's been reading Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. This is the story of an unemployed digital designer who unexpectedly finds himself working in a bookstore. We've got Elaine Debaton's How Proust Can Change Your Life. I think it's like part self-help, part literary analysis. Uh, I've been reading the stunning debut Australian novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. Plus, we're going to talk about the TV shows that we actually think are better than their books. So that doesn't happen often. If you want to join in the conversation or share your thoughts, we'd always love to hear from you at bookclub at hopemedia.com.au. First, though, let's take a listen to Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore by Robin Sloan. My name is Clay Jannon, and those were the days when I rarely touched paper. I'd sit at my kitchen table and start scanning help-wanted ads on my laptop. Then a browser tab would blink and I'd get distracted and follow a link to a long magazine article about genetically modified wine grapes. Too long, actually, so I'd add it to my reading list. Then I'd follow another link to a book review. I'd add the review to my reading list, too. Then download the first chapter of the book, third in a series about vampire police. Then help wanted ads, forgotten. I'd retreat to the living room, put my laptop on my belly, and read all day. I had a lot of free time. I was unemployed, a result of the great food chain contraction that swept through America in the early 21st century, leaving bankrupt burger chains and shattered sushi empires in its wake. Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore is the story of an unemployed digital designer living in San Francisco who unexpectedly finds himself working in a bookstore of all places. Natasha Moore's been reading it. G'day, Natasha. Hey, Katrina. Can we start with the main character, Clay? Like, where is he at when the novel opens? Uh, so he's pretty fun, actually. I liked him a lot. He is recently out of art school. He was working as a graphic designer and he finds himself in the wake of the global financial crisis, unemployed, like a lot of other people, and that he doesn't really know what to do with himself. His standards are rapidly dropping as he looks through job ads and he's wandering around his home city of San Francisco and he stumbles across this 24-hour bookstore. It says help wanted in the window and he takes the night shift. <laughs> I was going to say, does he get the graveyard shift in the 24-hour bookstore? 6 <laughs> was, he, was he into books? I know he's a digital designer, but was he a reader? Uh, well, that's the question that he gets asked in the what we might call an interview, which is a brief conversation with Mr. Penumbra himself, um, the owner of the bookstore, who asks him, you know, have you ever enjoyed a book? And he tells him honestly about this book that he absolutely adored when he was a child, which is kind of a fictional book and which becomes quite important, um, the Dragon Song Chronicles, um, like a fantasy kind of novel. Uh, that he and his, he made a best friend over as a child and has read many times. Um, So he's kind of, um, and this is the really charming and unusual thing about this book, I think, is that he is both a lover of books, he does read, but he's also a massive embracer of technology. And this book does both. It loves old, musty, dusty books. And it also is kind of in love with 
information technology with like Google and coding and um, a bunch of things that I don't really understand, but it makes it all charming and it kind of marries the two of them. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about because, you know, I guess being set in San Francisco, you know, how much does the technology feature and how does it deal with that, what we would perceive as a gap between the digital world and the very physical world of books? Yeah, because those, you know, and they often get... Um, pitted against one another in these sorts of, you know, there's there's the traditional bookstore and you're either a lover of that or you love technology and you think books are dead or dying and bookstores are dead or dying. Um, and this kind of doubles down in both directions. It just, you know, thinks that both have this kind of um, quirky appeal. Um, it just loves knowledge. Um, it loves understanding things more and it goes in both directions. So, you know, this is, it emerges that this is not an ordinary bookstore. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, there are a few kind of books that you would find on a normal database and that you can kind of like the Steve Jobs biography and a few novels here and there at the front of the store. But most of the store is these shelves and shelves of books that aren't even proper books and aren't on any database or booksellers list um, and this is why there's a night shift is that people might come in these like very strange looking people um, and this starts this emerges clay kind of starts to figure out what's going on over his night shifts these people come in you know frantically looking for the next book uh, and he has to find it for them but he has no idea what's in them or why they want them so is this uh, kind of like a, a mystery element or a fantasy element uh, with what's going yeah. on here? All of the above, all of the above. Okay, so, all right. So there's this kind of, you know, I don't want to give too many spoilers, mm. but there it does kind of go down the arcane secret society, centuries old, art of printing kind of direction. Mm. But it also, you know, one of the main characters and kind of the love interest of the novel is this girl who wanders in who works at Google as a coder and is, you know, brilliant and obsessed with kind of um, immortality and the singularity um, and all these kind of future AI sort of ideas. And it goes in that direction as well and kind of brings those two things together. Wow. Sounds like it's doing a lot in this book. So I've heard Robin Sloan talk about the way, you know, he talked about how we read online with, you know, 25 tabs open at once, flicking from one thing to the next and said that, you know, books are one of the last things that can hold our attention over a longer time period. Did this book get your attention and hold it? It did. It's a little bit. I mean, it feels at the same time like a nestle into an armchair, have a cosy, you know, me and my book experience with a Milo and a Rory yeah, Fire. Yeah, also it it almost does feel like the twenty five tabs open as well. Like it's manic. It's doing a lot of things. It's very witty. Um, it's fast paced. So it's almost like a book influenced by the internet. Yes, very much so. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I've really read anything like it. Ah. Actually. I was going to say, is there anything you'd compare it to? But, yeah, clearly not. Or do you want to just leave us with a few things that you liked about this story? So I really liked the characters. They're all quite quirky. Um, I really liked Clay's voice as a narrator and the way that he describes things. There's just lots of little kind of flourishes of wit and wisdom. Um, I liked the plotting 
in that I kept being like, I can't imagine where this could go. That would be satisfying. And then it kept kind of unfolding in these quite unexpected but very, I mean, not believable ways exactly. Like it's it's not exactly a realistic novel. Right. But these satisfying ways. And I think also, you know, it's dangerous writing about something like technology um, and cutting edge technology. And, you know, part of it is set on the um, Google campus and that kind of thing ages very quickly, right? So the book is 2012, but even reading it now, it doesn't read as outdated as, oh, well, you know, that was interesting and exciting in 2012, but now it's 2020 and we're, we're past We've that. moved on, yeah. So, we read it in my book club and even with a couple of coders in my book club, they were like, oh, actually, no, I'll pay this. This was this made sense to me and I thought he handled this material well. Okay. So whether you're a book lover or a technology lover or both, this one's for you. Awesome. All right, so now something a little bit different, another book about books. I personally love books about books. I mean, most book lovers do. Natasha, you've been reading How Proust Contained Your Life by the philosopher Alain de Botton. Proust is considered one of the most important writers of the last century, but you know, not many readers will actually have time to tackle a seven-part novel that took 17 years to write. So this book is a bit of an attempt to analyse Proust and pull some life lessons out of it. So firstly, have you read Proust, Natasha? Look, I thought you might ask that. Um, <laughs> I have been meaning for many years to read Proust and actually because I studied French at school and as an undergraduate um, and uh, the first volume of Proust's masterpiece was on one of my courses and I was supposed to read it. But here's the thing about Proust. Not only is the book remembrance of things past or in search of lost time depending on your translation not only is the book more than a million words long but his sentences are like some of them will go for pages oh so, wow like his his language is incredibly intricate so if you're trying to read that in french and french is not your first language it's just very difficult to follow and i think for years i really did intend to read it in french and i have finally accepted that that will never happen it's just, it's too much. I can't do it. I don't have that kind of stamina. And so I've accepted that I will read it in English, but I haven't got there yet. Well, you I step ahead I... of me, Natasha, because <laughs> you've at least meant to read Proust, whereas I haven't even got to the point yet where I'm like, yes, I'm going to do that. I have read lots of books that quote from Proust or refer to Proust or assume knowledge of Proust, but that's about as far as I've got. I have, however, read Elaine de Botton, the author of this book, have you read much of his stuff? I've read a bit. Yeah. I'm a kind of half fan of his. I like yeah. a lot of his ideas. I never quite enjoy his books as much as I think I will, but this one I did, I actually found very charming. Okay. So so his whole thing is how Proust can change your life. So does he convince you that you should read Proust? Uh, I think if you started out the book not knowing anything about Proust and not sure if you wanted to read it, you might get to the end and have, you could go either way. You could be like, oh, okay, well, he's kind of digested this for me and I'll take away those handy little lessons and not bother. Or you might be inspired um, to uh, undertake the quest. Um, but for me, because 
I sort of decided at some point during ISO, during lockdown, that maybe this was the time in my life when I was finally going to read Proust. But it still was a little bit daunting and I was like, well, somebody gave me this book at some point and maybe this can be my like aperitif, you know, maybe this can kind of be my warm up to yeah. reading. Okay. Book, which, you know, I haven't done yet, but it did make me, it did kind of pave the way. I feel like, oh, I feel more confident I'll, I'll have more of a handle on it when, I'm going to say when, not if. Okay. So let's let's go back to this this bold claim, uh, how Proust can change your life. What do you reckon? Can Proust change your life and how? Why? Um, Please explain. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting premise. And this is kind of the thing about Alain de Botton. You know, he's so popular um, as a philosopher because he's so digestible and he he kind of simplifies everything to the point where, like, he gives you kind of a surprising twist on things, um, but he makes everything seem kind of doable. Uh, and so he takes Proust's life and his writing, um, his grand novel, and he kind of goes, okay, well, let me let me translate some life lessons for you. And a lot of those lessons are um, interesting or wise or even just entertaining. But there's also, I think, a lot of complexity, like there's a sort of naivety there that he goes, oh, okay, well, let me give you these kind of morals from him. Um, <laughs> right. And you could follow that or not follow that. But I think actually the engagement with a work of literature is a lot more complex than that. I'm a li- I'm, I have my doubts about the process. But it was kind of so pleasant that I didn't mind. Well, yeah. I mean, do you think that, okay, forget reading Elaine de Botton writing about Proust and what you can learn from it. Do you think you actually can learn life lessons from literature? Do you think they stick? I think you can be changed by literature. I think if what you are looking for is life lessons, um, that's probably not going to work out that well for you. I think you have to lay yourself open to a book to be what it is, and but that that will shape us in kind of unpredictable ways, not in here's a nugget of wisdom kind of ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I can certainly give you an example uh, from a book I've read recently, which was the Dictionary of Lost Words. There were so many life lessons in there, but they're not life lessons you could get by me writing a book about the book. You have to read the book Mm. to get the lessons. I'm not sure what life lessons you can get from reading a book about a book, but were there any nuggets in there that you're going to take out of it? I think for me, the joy of it was how whimsical the actual writing is and and discovering things about Proust that are just really random and he was such a strange unusual man I think really the overwhelming impression you get from it is that Proust's life and character was a bit of a disaster but that doesn't mean that you can't discover all these true and deep and life-giving things from the work that he wrote and that actually those two things don't have to correspond that much that just because he was a total hypochondriac and you know didn't get out of bed for years and um was kind of a disaster at relationships and couldn't get a job like couldn't settle to anything for most of his life doesn't mean he didn't actually have these incredible depths to him that he had this gift for communicating so i think almost this wasn't really one of the lessons but that people are really complicated um, and that there's a richness and a beauty to that that you can't just kind of sum somebody up and that will, you know, 
you can like put them in their box or whatever. I think it does a really good job of showing that people are just, there's so much more to them than what we might assume. Okay. So would you recommend this then? I would. I think particularly if like me, you're like, oh, I have been meaning to read Proust. I should read In Search of Lost Time. That's the thing I should do in my life. This is a good warm up. I would recommend starting here. And I think it will kind of ease you in um, and maybe give you uh, the motivation to persevere when Proust gets tough. If you think you're not going to read Proust and you don't have time, could this book almost be a substitute, the cliff notes, so to speak, to kind of have a bit of an awareness? I think if you want to be able to talk about books you haven't read and Proust is one of those books, Mm. yeah, this will give you plenty of stuff to say. talking about books you haven't read but it's more like filling in the gaps of your knowledge so you can understand you know yeah 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 all right too. yeah now this topic is one that we're probably never going to do again natasha the tv show that was better than the book now normally it goes the other way you know you read a book you love it you watch the show and you're like yeah not quite as good like you know they've changed the feel whatever you know big little lies classic example still a good tv show but doesn't really capture the the humour in the book. Occasionally, though, a TV show can come up better than the book. What do you reckon? Mm. Have you had that experience? I definitely have. It's always a bit of a shock, isn't it? Mm. Um, I don't know if it only happens in cases where you didn't actually like the book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. If you really loved a book, then it's hard to believe that, you know, any kind of version of it for TV or film could be better. But the one that springs to mind for me is Death Comes to Pemberley. Do you know it? I've seen the show, haven't read the book. There you go. Did you like the show? Yeah, I liked it, yeah. So the novels by P.D. James, um, the crime writer, and I've actually never read any P.D. James, but when she came out with a sequel, like a kind of detective novel sequel to Pride and Prejudice, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm in. I want to read about that. But it was incredibly disappointing, actually. Incredibly disappointing? Wow. So boring. Oh. Um, I know. And just not that well written. And, yeah, I really struggled with it. I was quite disappointed. And so when they made a TV series of it, I was like, really? Um, But actually the TV show worked really well. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say I loved the TV show, but it was good. We're going with better than the book, right? It was better so. than the book. Exactly. <laughs> it's, not, it's no Pride and Prejudice, but it's nice to see Lizzie and Darcy again after. It has some great people in it. And, yes. Yeah, yeah. Know, only three episodes. Yeah, exactly. We, yeah, I watched it one Christmas holidays with my mother-in-law and it was a good choice for that. So, yeah. yeah. yeah Look, we'll I'm going to go with a, a choice that may get me in trouble from some <laughs> fans because the fans of this series are very committed and very devoted but i've been listening to the audiobook of outlander okay oh i see Mm -hmm. and i know that a lot of people love 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 this series and look i'm enjoying it and i am definitely enjoying it (laughs) however look the tv show You've got the amazing landscape of the Scottish Highlands, which is just mm-hmm. absolutely filmic. You know, it's beautiful That's not on what screen. I thought, you were say. I thought you were going to say the amazing Sam Hewen, who plays Jamie. That's my yeah. third point. I'm getting there. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> the second one is Sorry. the landscape. Yep. The la- <laughs> 
Come on. The landscape's number one. Uh, the music is number two, okay? The beautiful theme song that you get in the TV show and the Scottish It's not in the book. You know, I mean, she refers to they have nights, you know, hall nights where there's dancing and that sort of thing, but you don't really get a real sense of the music, which in the series is just lovely. Uh, mm. And, yeah, Sam Hewen, Jamie, what can I say? His <laughs> <laughs> visual entertainment. <laughs> yeah, it's just not the same in the book. Because um, I start, I haven't read the books. My sister and my mum have mm. read, I think, the lot of which there is. I mean, it, it might be longer than Proust, actually. It might be. so much of this series, right? Like mm. a million words probably. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I have tried to watch the series and I got a bit bogged down. Yeah. Look, I didn't like series two when they go to France, but okay. I guess I've only read the first book and I've seen the first series of the show, uh, mm. first season, sorry, and I'm enjoying the book very much, but I just think it works on TV with the landscape, with the music and with that gorgeous. Very team. atmospheric. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Speaks so the eyes. Sure. Now, I've got to tell you about a book I've been reading, Natasha. I know you're going to oh, love this one. Okay. So I've been reading The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams, and it's a debut Australian novel. She has totally smashed it, Natasha. Like, wow, love to hear that. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's the story of Esme. When the novel starts, she's a young girl, and her father is one of the other main characters. I don't know how to say this word, lexicographer? Uh, yep. One of those people that work with words, uh, and he's working on the creation of the first ever Oxford Dictionary under Dr. James Murray. And Esme, um, or Essie May, as her friend Lizzie calls her, she starts her life under the sorting table in the scriptorium. So her mother's passed away. Uh, she's just her and her dad, and, and she, she spends a lot of time in this scriptorium. It's like a shed at the bottom of um, James Murray's garden where the lexicographers collect the words that create the dictionary. And so, of course, she develops this fascination with words, and, and she sort of defines herself and her experiences and the things in the world that don't make sense to her. Defining things sort of becomes a way to tame them, I guess. And so she secretly starts collecting her own words. Sometimes they're words that have been abandoned. Maybe they've drifted to the floor under the sorting table and she's she's kept them. They might be words that are duplicates or maybe words in common usage that haven't been written down because to qualify for the dictionary, they have to have been written down. And so sometimes a word that Charles Dickens has made up will end up in the dictionary, whereas a word that's in common usage by the women down at the covered market doesn't get defined. For example, using the word cabbage as a term of endearment to a small child, you know, that definition mm-hmm. never makes it into the dictionary. And so over time, she realizes that the selection and the choice of words and the way they're defined is very male-centric and that women's experiences, women's words and, and alternative meanings of words used by women are being overlooked. So so some of them might be left out because they're regarded as obscene, you know, parts of women's bodies and that kind of thing. Um, others might be words used by servant girls, prostitutes, poor women. And these words just aren't being written down because these people aren't writing. So they don't make it in. And particularly words related to like childbirth and motherhood and women's bodily functions and things like that. They're either overlooked or sometimes they're just defined in really negative ways that sort of downgrade the role of women in society, things related to menstruation, for example. So it sounds like is it kind of a subversive rewriting of this moment in history, like from the perspective of people whose voices don't get heard or recorded? So subversive in its day. 
it would have been. Like it's set back in sort of around, uh, I think it starts maybe 1898. The dictionary continues into the First World War. Uh, the women's suffrage movement is uh, very much playing out in the background and the First World War, and they make really interesting backdrops which change the role of women in society. But it definitely makes you think about the way that language shapes the world, the way that it reflects the values of those who write our history and what we value and don't value in in the written word, for example. So it sounds as though it kind of wants to be a vehicle for particular ideas and claims about the past and people's voices and what's important. But does it work as like a plot? Do you care about the characters? So this is the thing. It's so well done in that because we start with Esme when she's 10, you know, she doesn't have any agenda when she starts collecting words. It's a very slow reveal as her ideas grow and change, as she's exposed to different people, as she meets different people, as she starts to hear different words and she starts to value the contributions of different kinds of people. So we're really opening up along with her, but it definitely is one of those things that will open your eyes to the way history is written and you don't come out of it feeling angry and upset and, you know, really, it's not one of those books that's sort of political by nature, but it makes some interesting points. Some of the discussion, Natasha, focuses around the word bondmaid and how offensive that word is, that it exists, that a woman can exist to be the lifelong slave of another person, you know, until their death. So... You know, some of those things that come out, come out in ways that are, it's just done in a beautifully subtle way, but it's very clear as well what it's trying to say. I was going to say, so you think this um, is going to take off? Oh, definitely. It's massive. It's already starting to really snowball. I think it would make a great movie as well or a TV series. I have one criticism of it. I, I would say this is a near perfect book for me. It just didn't end in the right place for me. Mm. So, it ended early? Or? No, I think it ended too late. So mm-hmm. I think because the book really focuses on one character, I didn't like the way that the book extended the story beyond the life of that character. I would like it to have been more subtle about showing the impact of Esme's life, uh, perhaps just hinting at it without spelling it out for us. Uh, mm-hmm. I really wanted the book to end with her and not go beyond it. Beyond her, yeah. Mm. Okay. You have to read it, Natasha. If you insist. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, this has been episode 24 of the Hope Book Club. We've been talking about books, about books, and we've reviewed Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore by Robin Sloan, How Proust Can Change Your Life by Elaine de Baton, and The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at bookclub at hopemedia.com.au. And thank you for listening to the Hope Book Club because life's just better with a book about books. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.